Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? This week, we are going to tackle something that is a central part of our teachings of the behavior of the neuroscience of emotions. But first, why is this important? I know it sounds super sciencey, but I'm going to break it down for you in a way that makes it far less so and very easy to comprehend and understand. But it's important because if we don't understand how our brain works and how our emotions work, we'll never understand fully why behaviors occur and how to modify them. So let's start there. We need to know three parts of our brain. The first of which is the prefrontal cortex. This is where we get a little sciencey. The prefrontal cortex is the front part of your brain. If you touch your forehead, that's your prefrontal cortex. For younger kids, we'll call this the wise owl. It's your thinking brain. It's problem solving. It's logic. It's reason. We want to be in that part of the brain as much as possible because that's where we act rationally. The next part is in the central part of your head, your brain is the limbic area. And there are a couple pieces or parts of the limbic area that we need to know. One of which is the amygdala or amygdalae. They are your alert detection system. They're like the fire signal or fire alarm telling you to to do something, to respond, and that's where the impulsivity comes in and you become emotionally reactive. For older kids, we might call this your downstairs brain. For younger kids, we're going to call it the barking dog. And the last and final component of your brain that we need to understand is your brainstem. And that's at the kind of your neck, the base of your your head. And that is your fight, flight, freeze, fawn response system. And that's when we react to that limbic area, that amygdala, with that impulsive behavior, that impulsive choice. So I'm going to explain a hand signal that you can use for teens or for younger children that helps them to understand this sequence or these three parts of your brain in a visual sense. And it really breaks it down. So basically you're going to take your thumb and first make a high, like a high five, put your fingers together, your first, your top four fingers together, flat hand, thumb goes across your hand and then you wrap your fingers around your thumb. So that is your brain and your thumb represents the barking dog or the downstairs brain. Remember it's the limbic area home of the amygdala. And then you've got your four fingers across the top. 
They are your prefrontal cortex or your thinking brain. Remember, it's the wise owl. Or for older kids, we might call that their upstairs brain. And then at the very bottom, your wrist represents your brainstem. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, response, impulsive choices, behaviors, things like that. How this system works is when something in the environment triggers an emotional response, dog barks. So dog starts to bark. You can move your thumb like the dog is barking. And the barking dog scares away the wise owl and it flies away. Essentially what this means is that not just for kids, but for adults too, when we reach a certain point of emotional elevation and our dog starts to bark and our wise owl flies away, we aren't thinking logically or rationally. We are thinking completely from an emotional standpoint. And when you are stuck in your emotional brain and your amygdala, they might say amygdala hijacks your prefrontal cortex, you can't think clearly, you can't think rationally, you, you do things you wouldn't normally do. So... Often we try to communicate with kids when their dog is barking and it's just about impossible and it's completely ineffective. (laughs) It's completely ineffective when you communicate with an adult when their dog is barking. So we have got to be both preventative and reactive with this. We've got to find ways to calm the barking dog. So you want to be preventative by teaching those things when Uh, kids are calm so that they can remember to use them when they're upset, but you could also teach them in the moment by modeling them and doing something called co-regulating. So you kind of do what you want them to do, but you can't tell them to do it because the other part of this is when your dog is barking and your wise owl flies away, there's a point at which your dog gets so elevated that you can't even access speech and language. The Broca center of the brain shuts off. So for kids to hear your language or process your language or respond, it's it's, it's impossible. They have to come back to neutralization, to equilibrium first. So we want to work on ways to calm the barking dog. And we also want to work on ways to strengthen your prefrontal cortex, your wise owl. Because if you can do things, much like if you go to the gym and you want to get stronger, you, you lift weights or you are consistent, in your practice, if you do things to strengthen your prefrontal cortex and you're consistent in your practice, that part of your brain gets stronger. So things that would strengthen this would be any of those slow-moving mindfulness, meditation, yoga, stretching, any of those things on a regular basis would strengthen and grow that part of the brain, which means we would stay in logic and reason longer. That's what we want. That's where we make the best decisions. So there's this concept of top-down and bottom-up approach to behaviors, to emotions, and essentially the bottom-up approach is through the brainstem. So up through your wrist into your limbic area, which is that barking dog. It's your thumb, bottom-up. And these are things like movement, touch, breathing, all things that activate the the parasympathetic nervous system, which we will talk about in the future. But those things are hard to do in the moment. They're hard to teach in the moment. So if you can model them, if you can give some type of appropriate physical touch, if you can model breathing, if you can encourage some type of movement, it might enable the, the child to calm their barking dog. Dog stops barking, wise owl flies back. We can think rationally and logically again. 
the top down approach is through that prefrontal cortex. So through those four fingers across the top, which represent your wise owl. So again, these are things like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, things that kids have a little bit less motivation to do, but that's because we're in a society where things move so fast and we are used to instant gratification and we don't really slow down a lot or enough. Uh, and our body is actually really craving those things right now. So kids could benefit even more from that prefrontal cortex work from that top-down approach. And there are some really fun ways to embed mindfulness and meditation and find ways to get kids to mo- be, be more motivated to, to do those things. I mean, for example, one of my favorites for a mindfulness activity for kids, two favorites actually, one is the blindfold taste test. So what you'll do is you get either a new food or a familiar food. You can do it with one kid, you can do it with the whole family, but you blindfold them and put a plate in front of them and you put the food on the plate and they have to touch the food and they might have to smell the food, then they might lick the food, then they'll nibble it, then they'll bite it, then they'll eat it. And they go through all these steps to try and figure out what the food is or just determine if they even like the food. But they have to be completely immersed with their senses and be super mindful as they're going through the experience. The other option is I really love to choose an everyday object. Like for me, typically I'll do a plant and I choose an everyday object in my house and I recreate it and I can recreate it through drawing, through painting, through collaging, through, you know, with kids, you could do like blocks or Lego building and they are trying to recreate that everyday object, but it takes slowing down and creativity and activation of your prefrontal cortex. So simple things like that can really strengthen that part of the brain. So we're going to want to focus on that and be preventative and not just reactive and addressing the barking dog. Okay. So here are some examples from my own life of how this sequence of the barking dog and the wise owl work. Things that set my dog off into a wild barking uh, tandem would be like if my inbox is too full or if I'm working through my inbox and just more and more and more, more emails come through. Or let's just say I have some projects to do and people keep dumping more projects on and my workload feels like I'm not getting anywhere. Like I'm just adding more things to my plate and not taking anything off that can activate my barking, my dog to bark. And that's because I feel like I, I can't, I can't have control. I can't get anywhere and I'm, there's just no way out. So my dog starts to bark and then what happens is my wise owl flies away and not just in work, but in the other areas of my life, I'm not acting logically or rationally because my dog is so activated. So I need to be aware of that. I need to recognize that. I need to understand that. And then I can do things and put things in place to calm my barking dog so that I can act more rationally and logically. Here's another example. Let's just say um, I'm experiencing a loss of control, like things in the world, things in my home, things in my life, things in my work, like just in any area where it feels like things are spiraling out of control. As soon as that happens, that activates my dog, my barking dog. So then again, I'm I'm in other areas of my life acting irrationally or um, just not fully logically present, which isn't good (laughs) as an adult who is working in the world um, or trying to show up professionally. So recognize that, feel that my body, see it, and then do something to get back to neutral. So, So for me, what are some examples? What does calming my barking dog look like? 
If I need to do it in the moment and I can't walk away, I might just ground my feet um, into the ground. So I'm like root them into the ground. So what I do is I squeeze my feet really hard into the ground, close my eyes. I visualize roots of a tree going down into the ground and so kind of securing me on the ground. I might grab a drink of water. I might open a window, step out into the porch, go outside and just get some fresh air. I might also grab a snack that I know is going to activate my senses. So it could be something sweet or it could be something spicy or it could be something crunchy, but something that I know will activate other senses. If I have the option to and can, I might turn on a song and do a dance. I might do a breathing activity or a little bit of breath work. I might turn on a short insight timer. It's an app meditation for one to three minutes. I might, if I'm with other people or someone, ask them for a hug or encourage them to show some type of physical affection. All of those things, calm the barking dog, wise owl can come back, think more logically, think more rationally, can show up as my best self. So what does this look like for kids? Because it looks a little bit different for children than it does for adults. And this is where we at the Behavior Hub, we teach a very loose framework, a sequence for self-regulation. And it's all based on this hand signal and based in this neuroscience of emotions. Four steps. Teach them how to categorize their strong emotions. It could be using that barking dog, wise out hand signal, or we sometimes use a color-coded chart. Once they understand that and they can recognize, start to recognize when they're getting elevated, when their dog is starting to bark but isn't fully barking yet, then we'll move on to step two, which is teaching them those calming and coping strategies. And we teach them both the ones that calm the barking dog, the bottom up, and the top down, the ones that work on the prefrontal cortex or the wise owls, meditation, mindfulness activities. So they have this toolbox of tools to use to call on when they are stuck in the moment. Step three, we might integrate a calm down area or like a a Zen zone or a space somewhere in the house or the school or the room where they can go to, to just chill out. Not a timeout, not a punishment, not a consequence, just a place that they can go to physically remove themselves from the energy of the situation. And when they feel good and when they feel right and they check in with themselves and make sure their dog is no longer barking, then they come back to the situation scenario or group. Step four, and I will go through all of these steps in a future episode in much, much more detail. Step four is problem solving. So once the dog is calmed down and the wise owl is back and they are in their logic and reason brain, then we might talk through what just happened, how it made them feel, how it made me feel, what the problem was with that, and what collectively can we do the next time to help that either to not happen or to respond better. That's the big one. That's where most people, they leave that out. And that that's what, that's the educational piece that teaches people what to do differently next time. So it's fine to be able to, and it's good to be able to calm the barking dog, access your wise owl. But if you don't think about and reflect on what to do differently next time, you're just going to do the same thing. And at least you'll be able to calm yourself faster. But if you haven't brainstormed solutions, you're probably going to go through the same cycle or they're probably going to go through the same cycle, which we want to prevent. So that is really important. Okay, that was a lot of information in a very little amount of time. So just to recap here, your four fingers across the top, that is your upstairs brain, your wise owl, your prefrontal cortex, thinking, logic, reason. 
your thumb is your barking dog. Downstairs brain, that is your limbic area, home to the amygdala, the alert detection system. It's your emotional control center. And when that's activated, that's where you get those impulsive, irrational choices and behaviors. And then you've got your wrist, which is your brain stem. And that's your fight, flight, freeze response system. When something in the environment activates the barking dog or activates your emotional control center, dog barks, scares away wise owl, means that we can't act fully, rationally, or with logic until we calm the barking dog, until we calm our emotional control center. I'm sure if you have kids or work with kids, that makes perfect sense in your mind as you try and communicate with them to stop or redirect them to do something different or offer a consequence or punishment. None of those things are going to work because they need to get to neutral first and lots of awesome ways to get to neutral. And we talked about those with the top down and the bottom up. A lot of information, a lot of science information, but really awesome information because we have access to all of these things and we can understand behaviors and emotions from a much deeper level. And when we can do that, we can change behavior. All right. So we're going to wrap up with today's listener question, which comes from Ocean City, Maryland. And this person asked, what do I do for tough children whose parents don't want to be involved in their educational program? I love this question. I have probably gotten it 20 times in the last six weeks. So when I'm asked that question, my mind immediately goes to get curious about why the parent might not want to be involved because there's some kind of barrier there for them to be involved. Is it their past experience with education? Is it um, a belief system they have? Is it because they're overwhelmed? Just try to get curious and brainstorm and, and talk to them if you have a relationship built with them and rapport already built with them. And think about too, what what's going to motivate them to be involved? Like, Is your approach something that is appealing to them or is the way that you're approaching really turning them off? And can you think of an approach or can you think of changing the way you approach it to make it more appealing and to make it more motivating for them? If people have motivation to do something or be involved, they're interested in being involved. So maybe there's something that we need to change on our end and not necessarily something that we need to expect them to change on their end. I know that's not the answer that everyone wants to hear, but it is the reality of how human behavior works and we get people to change. Find motivation. The other part of this is locus of control. Sometimes we don't have control in these situations. Sometimes we don't have control of how parents show up and how they act. We can start to shape and change that by building a relationship with them and asking these questions and figuring out what motivates them and what drives them or what gets in the way. But we need to also focus on what is within our locus of control. And changing other people's behaviors isn't always an option for us. So focus on what you can control in that situation, which is your interactions with the child and your response to the child. And really just put more energy there if you're hitting kind of a dead end with the parents. But don't give up hope. All people need is one person to show that they care and they can be easily turned around. The other thing I would ask you to think about and consider is what kind of rapport do you have in the family? What kind of relationship do you have? And maybe you don't have much because you can't get the family to get back to you. But if you keep knocking and you keep showing up, eventually people might turn around. So yes, that can be exhausting, but it can be also life altering. So keep showing up, build that rapport, build that relationship and tell the person or family members that you are there and you are, will be here uh, when they're ready to reach out. And the last option here is 
everyone is super overwhelmed right now. Raising kids is tough and educating them is also tough. So can you give parents information in tiny bits? I mean, as an educator that was in the field for over a decade and still is in the field, sometimes the information that we send home is just not friendly. Like the packets of information and the lengthy emails or the verbiage is like paragraphs, like people don't have the time or energy to read that. So how can you send information in a way that it can be heard and received and, and utilized? Uh, so I take things that I want parents to understand or use or do, and I break it down into micro steps tiny, tiny, tiny steps. And I share one of those tiny bits of information with the parents and ask them to do that tiny bit of information. Because if I can really break it down for them and they can do one tiny thing and they feel success with that one tiny thing, they're going to be more willing to try more tiny things in the future, which build up to longer term habits, which is what we want. So really break it down for them. Try not to give them too much information in a small amount of time. And just keep in mind that it's likely that their dog is barking quite frequently. So they don't have a lot of capacity to take on information or act logically uh, or rationally. So try and find ways to to reach them uh, that doesn't further activate their barking dog. All right, to wrap up the show, we are going to, I am going to share with you a try it at home tip, which is called the lemon squeezes. This is a fun one. It's a muscle relaxation technique, meaning... Muscle relaxation techniques are things where you, you kind of do a body scan. This is tougher for kids. So you might just give them one to try. But with adults, we can do a body scan. So start at your head or start at your feet and just kind of maybe close your eyes or don't close your eyes and kind of visually scan your body or like mentally scan your body and see where you're holding tension. Like without even doing a scan, I can tell right now my tension is being held in my back and my shoulders. So if I know that, then I want to choose a muscle relaxation technique that releases tension in that part of my body. Lemon squeezes actually works on your wrists, hands, forearms. So maybe you hold tension there, or maybe it just would feel good to release some tension there. But with muscle relaxation, muscle relaxation techniques, you are tensing up a part of your body. You're holding it super, super tight for about 10 seconds, and then you're releasing it. And you do that a couple of times until you feel more neutralized, more calm, more balanced, or just that tension release in that part of the body. And it's just based on kind of how you feel and, and for kids, how much tension they have to be able to do this. And if lemon squeezes doesn't motivate them, let them name it or come up with a more fun name or a name that they can connect to better. But with lemon squeezes, you're going to take your two hands and you're going to make a fist and you're going to squeeze as hard as you can. 10 seconds, hold it and then slowly release your fingers. And you should feel this calming sensation and it's releasing all these awesome things into your body that helps you to calm down. So I would encourage you to practice this, make it a daily habit and you can pair it up with maybe like teeth brushing in the morning or when you eat breakfast or if you make a transition home every day, do it before you walk into your house. But the more you practice it, the more likely you're going to be able to call on it in the moment when you actually need it. So pair it with a habit. And that is it for today's episode of Returning to Us podcast. Remember today's tried at home tip, the lemon squeezes. And if you'd like me to answer any of your questions on a future episode, email me at podcast at thebehaviorhub.com. Until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thanks for listening.